0: Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray.
1: Hello and welcome once again wherever you are in our great country or around the world. As stated, and this is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel. You just heard the theme song for my musical, Americans All, and we use it here as a theme for All Rise as well. But if you're at all interested, we have either a condensed version of this, which helps mentor our students, Uh, If you're interested and would like to take it on the road, in effect, to a middle school and perform it for an assembly, it's available to you. If you want to do the full-length version, two acts for Americans All, which has also been performed, we can help you with that, too, if you're into community theater, high schools, etc. But today, I am going to, first of all, wish you a happy 4th of July. It's tomorrow, and we're going to have flags, of course, and hot dogs and fireworks and family and the rest, all of which is wonderful. But but also, I, I would just recommend that we take a few moments and pause and think about the United States of America. I was born here. I was so blessed to be able to be born here. In fact, what I I say, the best decision I ever made in my life was choosing my parents, and I've been the beneficiary of that so-called choice ever since. But actually, I think this has given me a moral obligation to help those that did not Choose quite so well that I we've been blessed to be here in the United States. So I've been able to, in effect, spout off by myself without a guest on All Rise uh, several times in the past. The first one was our first our first broadcast, which was back on April 19th of 2019, where I just gave kind of an introduction. You can hear all of these on demand, of course, if you wish. Uh, April. Then the the second one was on September 27th, 2019, where I discussed I think it was five issues plus a bonus. Bonus actually was we should go on to the metric system. I haven't felt any great surge for that for that uh, carrying the day so far, but really think we should. The third one was talking about drug policy, which is complicated and as I call it the biggest failed policy in the history of the United States of America, second only to slavery. And that was broadcast on January 17th of 2020. And then the fourth was on judging. I thought people might be interested just in knowing what a judge does, uh, what the, the pressures are, what the responsibilities are, etc. So that was broadcast on February 7th of 2020. And then the fifth one, the last one that we have done, uh, we were talking about a call-in show, and that was on uh, June June the 5th of 2020 uh, with regard to the COVID-19 virus. So we were kind of taking, that's the first time I've done call-ins before, and it was really kind of fun. And it was just, just of course, we uh, we libertarians submit ourselves to what we call AMAs. AMA means ask me anything. And I really don't think that neither Biden nor Trump will submit themselves to AMAs in any time in their campaign, but we do it routinely. So that was kind of fun when you'd have call-ins to to go through and do that. But this one, uh, broadcasting now, the day before the 4th of July, and I'd like to entitle it, Make the System Work. You know, what does that mean? Well, all of us in our country, whatever station we're in, are in a position on occasion to help make the system work. And I'll give you a really short example. I was actually on a speaking tour a few few months ago now, back at Columbia University in New York City, and I found, saw that, wow, it's really close to Grant's tomb, which I had not visited for huh, decades. So I went over and looked at it, and inside it was just really inspiring, quite well done. But on the outside, it had a bench that was made out of tile, really colorful. If you've ever been to Barcelona in Spain, when you heard of the architect Gaudí, he's just a flamboyant person. Might as well have been designed by Gaudí, but it had weeds growing through it. In fact, tree, almost small shrubs going through it, which was just awful. And the sign, it was a national monument, so a sign was down on its side, on the ground. So I took some pictures, sent them off to the head of the National Park Service, saying not on my watch. Quoting Bob Dylan, actually, who said... uh, you're either busy being born or busy dying and that's not only true with individuals I think it's true with countries so not we're not busy being born or busy busy dying we are busy being born let's fix up our national treasures and I got a letter back from him maybe three weeks later with pictures saying that sign is now up and it wasn't a question of money it was just a question of, of just a little more caring okay is that a big thing no but it was one way at least that I in my small way could make the system work last July 4th it happened that I was on a radio show, Coast to Coast with, with George Nury, that gets a great listenership. It was on from, huh, my goodness, 10 o'clock in the evening until midnight on 4th of July, but really was amazing how many people listened. We were talking about the war on drugs and the, the criminal justice system in general. And as a result of that, I received letters from 11 inmates from prisons all around the country. And... Uh, a couple of them said that they were factually innocent, and they uh, were so convincing to me, I forward them on to the Innocence Project in the in the uh, cities where their their prisons were. But it's just a terribly harmful thing to think that we even have one person in prison who is factually innocent in our country. But uh, we, have, uh, we have many, I fear. In fact, you go back to uh, November the 8th of 2019. I actually interviewed a man named Justin Brooks, who was the chair of the Innocence Project in San Diego. And he said, uh, you can listen to it. I was horrified then to hear him say it. I'm still horrified now. He's been doing this for 20 years. He himself has walked 29 people out of state prison who were factually innocent. This is simply not something that, that that we can tolerate. So we should, in fact, inquire anyone that says they're factually innocent. They should have the ability to, to show that with, with government assistance if necessary. So as a result of that, I started communicating, corresponding with these, these in effect, pen pals, these 11 inmates, and asking them, well... What is life like inside a prison? What What is life like? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And they started corresponding, and they gave me more information. And as a result of that, I, I turned that into a magazine article. It's actually just about to be published. It's in this July's version. Uh, issue of Verdict Magazine, so it it is available, and I've sent now a copy of those to each of the the inmates that was my pen pal, but we talked about what life is like. One of them said that he is Jewish and that he had heard that there was a hit out on him from some, some... Skinheads, as he called them. And uh, he knew that the warden was aware of this hit out on him. He knew that the correctional officers were as well, but they didn't protect him. And soon enough, they had these two guys who were stabbing him in the back with a homemade knife, they call it a shiv, all the while yelling, die, Jew, die. Now, he even included what looked to me like an official medical record from the prison, cause of injury attempted suicide i mean are you kidding me anybody you think would ever stab themselves in the back uh, much less seven times. So I wrote to the warden, said there has to be a, a, an investigation of this. I got no response. And of course, they I wasn't entitled to hear the specifics, but I was certainly entitled as a citizen, retired judge, to know that there was an investigation. I got no response. So three weeks later, I wrote to the prison warden's boss, namely the governor of the state of California, uh, and sent a copy to the prison warden saying these were the allegations. And right away, uh, it didn't take long, oh, dear Judge Gray, Hey, uh, yes, we've conducted this investigation. We've done this, that, and the other thing. And I hope that they respond to the governor, who should be able to hear that. But it's a small thing, but that makes the system work. How can we do this? Well, I recently ran for the Libertarian nomination for president. Uh, I did not obtain that; it was instead uh, given to Dr. Joe Jorgensen, who is a uh, uh, teacher at Clemson University, and a man named Spike Cohen. But uh, you know, we're What would we do right away if, in fact, we were to to win the nomination for president, I, I would have said that I would have taken marijuana off the medical schedules immediately, off this Controlled Substances Act, and allow each state to decide how best to serve and protect its people. That is something that marijuana never should have been on this and to begin with, uh, and we needed actually a constitutional amendment, as you know, the 18th Amendment, for the federal government to make alcohol illegal, for heaven's sake. And then, of course, when it was repealed by the 21st Amendment, how could we, in fact, make marijuana? illegal in our country and the answer is from chicanery actually back in the marijuana tax act of 1937 uh, we didn't make marijuana illegal what we did kind of slyly and end run we said okay gray if you you can sell ten dollars worth of marijuana to your neighbor but we're going to charge you a 60 percent tax on that. And we're going to have you fill out some cumbersome forms. And if you don't fill it out and you don't pay the tax, we'll prosecute you for tax violations. So that's the way it was all the way up until the Nixon administration, in which uh, then for the first time in our country, we made marijuana illegal by putting it on the Controlled Substances list, Controlled Substances Act. And it is a now, as we speak, a Schedule One drug which means that it has no medical value whatsoever. Uh, Heroin is on there as well. Uh, It has no medical value whatsoever. And I'm truly of the belief, and I've, gone to the mattress on this quite a bit, that uh, this was a crime against us in since 1937 onward because we have prohibited research. And I'm completely convinced that the CBD oil in marijuana, which has no mind-altering substances, that's the THC, no mind-altering substances whatsoever, but it does have medical propensities. I think it will be a positive medical revolution and is now starting to sweep the country as well it might. So that would come off the controlled substance. Act, uh, as well as allowing each state to decide how best to serve and protect its people. And if they want to still make it illegal from state to state, that's fine. And if you were illegal and somebody were to smuggle marijuana into that state, that could be a violation of federal law because we would help enforce those states. But many of them have already made medical marijuana available and now recreational cannabis as well. Good for them. So there's also various things that, that you have to focus upon. We do this here in All Rise. We direct issues really head, head on. And, and hooray for that. We need to do this. And as we go into the 4th of July or whatever else, I talk about the deficit. And I was, and I've said this, I think once or twice already on All Rise, uh, while I was the chair of the World Affairs Council of Orange County, we had an ambassador. This is a, a group that brings in speakers talking about international relations, uh, international political issues, et cetera. And this was a, an ambassador named John Negroponte. And after he'd gone through his discussion, and he, really a lot of perceptions and and. Uh, Certainly an intelligent, sophisticated fellow in his approach. But the first question was of him, well, Mr. Ambassador, what is the biggest security threat to the United States of America today? And without batting an eyelash, he said, it's the deficit, that it is a time bomb. And I when and, and during my uh, run for the nomination, Libertarians I was actually just it was Mentioning that I just become a grandfather, and boy, what an exciting moment that was! On April the 22nd, became a grandfather, little Hudson, and on about five days later, was able to be holding my little grandson in my arms, looked down at him, and thought, "My goodness, what a miracle child! What a miracle birth! That he's just an amazing little little child." And then the second thought I had was, "Okay, Hudson, you're $76,000 in debt because of the deficit. Pay up." Who is speaking out for the Hudsons of this world? Who is speaking out to represent the young? Because, you know, I'm an older type now. The deficit, yeah, it's there, but we'll kick that can down the road. It won't adversely affect me particularly, probably, but my children, my grandchildren, Hudson, yes, libertarians are the only ones that speak to those issues. We must do that. We must address these issues directly. How can we bring down the deficit? Well, first of all, you do it because you shine a light on what's going on. You conduct an audit, which we should do. We've had these numbers of people on all rise talking about in city government, state government, federal government, with all of these things in the budget that there's no reason for. That if you were a a family, you would conduct that audit yourself routinely and you would cut out those unnecessary expenses. Do certainly the same thing as a company, but well, we don't do it as a government. Why? Who knows? It's politics, or eh, why not? We'll just raise taxes and increase it. So we need to sign a light with regard to all federal agencies, and this was one of the planks that Larry Sharp and I had in our campaign, that we would have an audit. We have we call it sunset provisions, where each federal agency would be required to come to Congress individually on a routine, regular basis, say every five years, and at that point, with coverage on C-SPAN or something so we could all could see it, hey, what have you accomplished the last five years, for example? What were your goals? How much did you spend? Well, you know what what successes did you have did how much bang for the buck did we get, and then, okay, what is your budget for the next five years? What are your goals? What do you propose to accomplish? How much do you expect to spend and then we could all look at it together, conducting this audit. well, wait a minute no this is this is duplicated we don't need that let's eliminate that part and shrink that budget and oh, this is. Maybe this was necessary back in the 1930s with the New Deal. Uh, you can argue whether it was helpful then or not. But my goodness, now we're in the year 2020, 80 years later or so. We, do we really need this? No. So we'll shrink that back down. And we can see where we have this fat, where we have this non-productive work, and shrink the budget with an idea that, of course, when you really start looking at some of these agencies, we really shouldn't have them. Might be with an idea toward abolishing the agency completely simply by taking away its funding. Now, which agencies? Well, let's start with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where a good entrepreneur one time said, Anyone that feels that they can thrive by relying on the government should talk to the American Indian. I mean, that's pretty much all you have to say. So, Let's see if we really need that. The Native Americans refer mostly to the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, as bossing Indians around. Well, do we really feel that we need someone to tell them how to teach their children, uh, keep them on a reservation while they're not kept there involuntarily? But you realize if you go through Native American reservations, the houses are really bland looking. Why? Because the Indians don't own them. The Native Americans cannot own their own home frequently. So why should I fix it up? Why should I paint it? Why should I make it you know, more attractive? It's not mine. Or if I want to start a business, for heaven's sake, I can't borrow with my house as collateral to get the seed money to start the business because I don't own it. So let's get the Bureau of Indian Affairs out of their lives and, and, in effect, allow them to make their own decisions. And then they'll start acting as adults, making better decisions. Actually, I'm kind of into this that I saw one time a cartoon. And the cartoon showed this huge office room, office building, uh, where it was wall-to-wall desks. Everybody was sitting there on telephones, on their internet, whatever. And it called the Bureau of Indian Affairs. was an assigned for it. And one person looked over in the corner and saw this man in explosive tears and said, well, what's the matter with him? Oh, his Indian died. Well, it's the idea being that there are as many administrators and bureaucrats as there are people that are being administered. No, I think it would be a strong case to have the Bureau of Indian Affairs simply abolished. But I'm not I can't do that as president or as anyone else. But we can do that as a country. We can have an audit of these various agencies to see if they're necessary or not. And once they're shrunk down, then we start addressing the budget start helping Hudson and all of our other children. These are things that any company would do. Understand that the federal government is the biggest so-called company in the world, the biggest, most expensive company, explaining that. And and this is simply from the boots up. Big government is really, really good and effective at one thing, and that is increasing the size, the cost, the power of big government. And we simply cannot continue to have that happen. Ask yourself this question. Just, just please take a moment and ask yourself this question. Have you ever in your lifetime seen any instance in which the government started intruding into the marketplace, into the free enterprise system, where the prices did not go up and the quality of the goods and services did not go down? Any time at all? I cannot. And of course, the flaming example is healthcare. Where uh, I was raised in the 50s and early 60s, where simply was not a factor of conversation that we didn't have enough emergency rooms, for example. We didn't have enough uh, uh, good quality medical care at reasonable prices. It just wasn't a part of the discussion. We had competition. And instead, think of three areas today where we have good quality health care at reasonable competitive prices. What are they? Well, LASIK eye surgery, because it's voluntary. Don't have... You don't have insurance companies, don't have government involved. You have dental cosmetic surgery or other cosmetic surgery. Again, you can come to Dr. Gray. I'll give you a really reasonable work I'll give you a payment schedule etc you get the government out of these things and it's pretty much the same thing now with government saying when companies can must close or when companies must open no get the government out of that central planning out of government simply does not work and we've got to bring back the, the free market area certainly with some oversight and the rest but that's where we are so we would look at the deficit, that is clearly something that we must do, we must address, we must talk about. What's another one? Well, we're going to come back in a moment and talk about the, the safety net, what I would propose of Milton Friedman's idea. But before we do that, let's talk about the FDA, the Federal Food and Drug Act. It required originally that only they would oversee safety of pharmaceutical products. And, of course, nobody wants to have arsenic in your aspirin. So if it's harmful to you, yes, it should be prohibited and we should have quality control to that degree. But over the years then, I think it was in the 1960s, they also expanded that to mean efficacy. I mean, is it effective at what it does? And the answer to that is no. Let the marketplace decide if it's effective or not. If it's going to harm you, that's one thing. But if choosing effectiveness, the market is much better at doing that. The customers can decide pretty quickly whether this really does help or not. But with the FDA, it adds another Nine years or so, average, onto the process of getting various pharmaceutical products certified. It costs extra tens of millions of dollars as well. So, if you would just eliminate that, as we have seen by the recent COVID-19 problem, we're getting testing out. The, the the FDA harmed us by by putting this more. In, impediments in front of being able to get testing kits out or ventilators or the rest. Government impeded this. Finally, of course, the government fast-tracked these issues, which basically just shows that they shouldn't have been there to begin with. So the FDA is simply something, conduct an audit and see whether the private, private sector can do this. One thing that you've all heard, I expect, is underwriter laboratories. You see that UL symbol on the toasters or on various products. It's a private group. And it's not required for in order to have Westinghouse or Westinghouse or General Electric or whatever sell toasters, but they do because they know that they were tested and the, the customers know that they'll get better quality. Well, why not have something similar to that with regard to pharmaceuticals as well? And on that subject, if we're interested in reducing the costs of our medical care and increasing quality and, and uh, uh, boots on the ground, why don't we allow three types of drugs instead of two? But today, we have prescription drugs, which you, of course, need a doctor's prescription to get, or we have over-the-counter, where you can just go in and buy cases of aspirin or, or whatever if you want to. Why not have a third type of called behind-the-counter? Because we have pharmacists. You go into any pharmacy, they have trained pharmacists. They're medical doctor trained, and they know a lot more about the effectiveness of drugs, the combination of drugs. Oh, you don't want to take this drug along with that drug or be sure not to drink alcohol, whatever. So you as a customer, a patient can go to a pharmacy, talk to a, a pharmacist, tell what your problem is. Oh, it used to be, you know, when I got the flu, I took such and such a pill. It worked pretty well then. And you can actually have this dialogue directly and then they will give you this this pharmacy this uh, these pharmaceuticals you don't have to go to the expense and trouble of seeing a gt you know a general practitioner probably the pharmacist knows more about the effectiveness of drugs anyway than than the gt does you would be able to eliminate that step reduce prices and re- and increase effectiveness these are things that government should get out of the way with Government impedes our progress. So these are things that we talk about on All Rise. We're going to continue to talk about them, and I'm just happy to be able to share these thoughts. I don't have all the answers. (laughs) I know. I prove that pretty much every time I guess I open my mouth. If I run into people that have all the answers, I run as fast as I can in the opposite direction and would anticipate that you would want to do the same. But if you have questions, you have thoughts, uh, as well as Occasionally we'll have call-ins, but go to judgejimgray.com. It's interactive, so you can send me an email through judgejimgray.com. I'll respond to you, your thoughts about any of these issues or about other ones that you feel that we should discuss here on All Rise. But one that I'd like to discuss as well, and that is a safety net. And as soon as we have this break for, for a few words, we'll come back and talk about a safety net that I would like have presented to us all. I was in the Peace Corps. I care about people. I think that just because if I were bleeding on the street, as I've said on this show before, if I were bleeding on the street right here, You would have no legal obligation to help me whatsoever unless you help cause my injuries. That would be different. But we will because we want to, because we're compassionate people. So I'm not entitled to it. Just because I'm alive does not mean you owe me anything. There's no entitlement at all. But we will because we want to, because that's the type of people we are. So I'd like to come back in just a couple of minutes after you listen to these announcements. We'll talk about the safety net. But Milton Friedman came up with. He called it a negative income tax. I don't like the word negative, so I say a stipend instead, but I'll try to explain it. I'd be interested in your thoughts, and I certainly wish that we would be able to implement this because it would vastly reduce the bureaucracy of our government, vastly reduce the intrusion, vastly the, reduce the cost. See what you think. After these few messages, we'll come back and talk about Milton Friedman's safety net, so stay tuned.
2: us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, you shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States. Join the Libertarian Party today at LP.org. Together, we can move mountains. racers and rental cars is the program for wannabe pro racers and those interested in the racing profession and automotive industry join hosts cameron foray and don o'neill as they take you behind the scenes with previews and review for race day it's about the business as well as the fun we've got the scoop the guests the discussion and the wtf moments all you need to do is bring your ears Racers and rental cars heard every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, aka Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, aka Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives, Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk.
0: Voice America is available on your Google-connected device.
2: Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio.
0: Try it today. We are- You are listening to All Rise, The Libertarian Way, with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise.
1: Well, welcome back after listening to those messages. I I am a libertarian. I I I was a former Republican with the passage of the so-called Patriot Act, which I then saw and still do see as a direct frontal attack on our civil liberties. Uh, I could no longer be a part of any group that would condone, much less assist, that direct frontal attack. So I, it took me 13 seconds to realize that I really am a libertarian. Uh, we have made substantial mistakes as a libertarian party for the last decades allowing other people to label us we've talked about this before here on all rise but if you were to just give a Rorschach test or just a connotation say the word libertarian and a lot of people I think unfortunately and even wrongly would say oh they're kooks oh they're survival of the fittest oh no government at all or completely open borders no controls you know there are some people I guess that believe anything but but we're not we're practical people we believe that government should be reduced in our lives, the intrusion. One of my campaign workers came up with the idea that, look, government, we're going to try to, your libertarians, get government out of your bedroom, out of your wallet, out of your business, and out of your way. And in so many ways that just happens. We've heard others talk about all of the requirements for for licensing and, and for permits and stuff that the local governments require. Almost completely unnecessary. I've said in my in my city, that if you're going to put in a new water heater, you're going to pay some private company to do it, but you also have to pay $50 to the city who come out and inspect. Well, the the, the people that are selling me the the water heaters, they're, they're bonded. They have insurance. They know what they're doing. We just don't need to have the city be involved with that. Are you aware also, by the way, on this subject of licensing, that in our country, we never really required people to get marriage licenses, to have the, have the city or the state government oversee, the county government oversee such a process. And it really began with anti-miscegenation laws. I think they were in the South, where they didn't want to have racial intermarrying. And so inter- intermarriage races, so interracial marriages. So so they started, well, how can we keep that from, oh, we'll make the prospective bride and groom come into us directly so that we can see them. Oh, we won't give them a license if in fact they're interracial. Does that, how does that make you feel? You know, I don't think that the- it used to be that you would simply announce to your people, your friends, your neighbors, hey, we're now getting married, you'd have your ceremony, probably in a church or, or religious location, but the, why should the government be involved in these sorts of things? It's encroaching, and it gets into our lives. So if you're interested in looking at this, uh, go to the website isidewith.com, the letter I-S-I-D-E-W-I-T-H dot com. Uh, it's nonpartisan, but you can take a test. It's It's private. And then you'll submit that test, and it'll show you with whom you you agree, you know, with which various political leaders, with which party, et cetera. When I did it before, I came out something like 85% with Governor Gary Johnson, which is pretty much descriptive. But you'd, you'd be interested. You don't have to share it with anyone, but give that a try, isidewith.com. But I told you that we'd start talking about Milton Friedman's safety net. Milton Friedman is a hero for me. He, I met him actually in 1993 when I was talking about our nation's drug policy. We went to the Hoover Institute, which is at Stanford University, and I actually led a conference talking about drug policy. But at a recess in there, I got to know Milton Friedman. He was talking about school choice, and he was talking about his negative income tax, which I've read about and actually written about as well. But okay, as we said earlier, that no one's entitled to anything from my standpoint, but we will do, we will provide help because we are a compassionate people. There is no level below which, in my opinion, people should not be allowed to fall. So let's take, with these numbers just as examples, this is what I would propose. I mix a graduated flat tax in with Milton Friedman's negative income tax. So bear with me. And again, these numbers are just for illustration, but I would say that no one in our country that would would pay any income taxes on their first $30,000, for example, of income, doing away with the distinctions between capital gains and interest income or regular earnings, whatever. Just No one would pay any taxes on that. For every dollar that you would earn between thirty dollars and $100,000, for example, you would pay $0.08 cents of those to the federal government. I don't care how you spend your money, boom, that would just be be done. For every dollar you make between $100,000 and $500,000, you'd, for example, pay $0.12 cents of those dollars to the government. And if you're really lucky and you earn more than $500,000 a year, you'd say pay 18 cents of those dollars to the government. End of discussion. Now, what about the, the whole income tax situation. This would be modified so greatly because right now I'm a modestly intelligent person. A couple of months ago, I signed my income tax return. I I, I didn't understand what I was signing. It was so complicated, so so laborious. I'll form this and form that. Uh, it cost me, I think, $1,100 to pay a tax preparer to do it. All of that would be gone. You don't have no deductions. Okay. Do we think that people would stop giving money to charities? No, that's that's selling people short. But you would reduce your income tax return probably to a postcard saying this is the amount that I earned. This is the amount that I paid. Thank you. Goodbye. So you would reduce the intrusion of the IRS. What by 80% or so? Reduce the cost, the bureaucracy, of, and the fraud with regard to our tax system by about 80%. That is, as I think Shakespeare said, devoutly to be wished. Give it some thought. But okay, now, what about people that earn no money? And again, I don't care. As long as you are at least 18 years of age, uh, you are a citizen or here legally with a green card, and you earn no money. Uh, you would receive a stipend of say $15,000 a year broken into monthly payments of say $1,250. And I don't care if you just lost your job to a robot or you just got out of prison and you want to start in again, or you're a single mom, or you're just lazy and you want to go back to school, I don't care. You will receive that stipend of $1,250 a month. But, importantly enough, for every dollar that you earn between 0 and $30,000, you would lose 50 cents of your stipend. So you will always have an incentive to earn the extra dollar. This is what makes it so much different than our welfare system today, again, courtesy of Milton Friedman. So you always have that incentive to better yourself incentive to earn the extra dollar, all the way up, of course, into infinity, because you always have those incentives one way or the other. Now, my daughter, Jennifer, has given me permission to talk about her. She's, she is bipolar. She is 44 years old or so, and she has trouble holding a job. So she was volunteering for a wonderful group called Veterans Legal Institute, VLI, and I told behind her back Talked to the director, said, look, if you will give my daughter a job, you pay her $12 an hour. I will pay you $15 an hour. But we quickly found out that if she were to work more than 10 hours a week, she would lose more in her benefits than she'd gain by working. So she has an incentive not to work. That would simply be gone under this system because we do away with all other welfare, just allowing people to have, have some money. Milton Friedman said, look, the difference between the poor and the wealthy are that the poor don't have any money, so give them some money. Now, of course, if they have other problems, if they have mental illness, if they have uh, drug rehabilitation problems, then put them on a conservatorship, provide that, but but most of them would simply be able to be treated as adults. Are they going to go spend their money all on drugs or on alcohol or whatever? Well, if they do, then they're going to start getting hungry, but you're going to trust them to make good decisions. If they need that conservatorship, that is a different issue. So they would have those incentives doing away with all other welfare, all of the intrusion, again, all of the costs, all of the bureaucracy, all of the fraud. These are things that people would be able to understand. Now, what about the homeless? Again, it, it, it troubles me, and if this is sexist, so be it, but the people being homeless, really in my country, is a blight, I think, on who we are. Not because we owe them anything. Many, many, of course, have mental illnesses, drug problems, et cetera, and it either bothers me more to see a woman be homeless than a man. And if that's sexist, then so be it. But That does trouble me more. But what about the homeless? Well, if they were to have an equivalent of an ATM card or account with $1,250 in it every month, routinely, people could count on it, then the private sector would quickly start coming up with a solution, maybe an inexpensive board and care facility, maybe low-cost housing, whatever that might be, and then – You would have an institutional response because today, as you've seen, and we've discussed before here on All Rise, today what we have is some politicians occasionally feel some political pressure, they feel guilty, they'll throw $10 million at at such and such an issue, put put the homeless into a motel for two months or something until the heat blows over and then they're kicked out again and the situation goes on as before. That's not an institutional response. But this negative income tax, this safety net this stipend would be an institutional response, but they still have an incentive to improve. You have these people receiving this money, you have the federal government out of the situation after they do that, the state governments then would be free to address the individual issues of the drug drug dependence or or mental health issues or sub, so it would all start working. Well, one question could be, okay, but it's more expensive, for example, to live in New York City than it is in Arkansas. And that's true. Should you make a differentiation between that, uh, New York City or not? Uh, we'll put our heads together and figure this out, but it might be a benefit to encourage people to go back into the suburbs where it's less expensive. I don't know. These are details that we should all be able to work out. But these are things that I think we should look at. What do you think? you think this would be a program that would work, uh, be able to to address the homeless issue, because today again, you know, it's 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 really a terrible thing. We're spreading disease. We are having people being set upon by by others. Uh, the rest, but you have no institutional responses. Basically, it's just a question for the most part of moving them from one place to another, and uh, that. So we rescue one area from being from the homeless, but just basically end up doing others. So these are security issues. These are institutional responses that I think we should employ. I'd be very interested stood again in your thoughts, I take these things seriously, and that we should be able to implement such a, such a program. Do away with, then, the aid with dependent children. Do away with the issues of food stamps and the rest, with all of those bureaucracies. And we talk about incentives. Today under the welfare system, if you are a single mother, you are... in fact really financially stupid to have the father of your children living with you because you can get a lot more money from the welfare system for the aid with dependent children etc if you are if you are there without a spouse without a, a, a the father living with you you lose a great deal of your income that way and then a father of course can also go out on the side and can uh, make money as well by being unemployed uh, today we've seen with regard to this covid virus issue covid 19 where people are making as much money on unemployment insurance as they would by working. So why should I go back and work? It's just, it's just a, a real problem. We talked about before about uh, anyone that feels they can rely on the government should talk to the American Indian, but it's pretty much the same. Welfare is a trap. It keeps people down it gets generational after a while and they just rely upon it takes away their their work ethic takes away any intention really of trying to make yourself better so these are things that we should employ we need to have in effect, incentives. As Milton Friedman say, incentives matter. They should always be a part of the discussion. They don't necessarily, in financial discussions, make every decision, but they're always a part of the equation. So these are things that we address on All Rise. Once again, I'd just be very interested in your thoughts. Go to judgejimgray.com. Be interactive with me. If you have modifications, questions, I think this is a movement that we should go toward. Everyone will win. Well, no, not quite everyone, uh, because I talked about the flat tax. Uh, Who would lose uh, as to that? Well, okay, tax preparers, tax accountants. Uh, h&r block would not like that idea i understand we can deal with that simplification would put in effect take away uh, a lot of the tax preparation industry i think we can all live with that but who's another group what's another very powerful group that would lose by implementing this graduated flat tax system along with the uh, safety net and that is members of congress why was that because Today, by voting for, for tax breaks for their wealthy constituents, they can get a lot of campaign contributions and a lot of political support. So they would, re- they would decline to do that, I'm sure. So what you do is publicly you go over their heads that you would get elected to the presidency and I would recommend to Joe Jorgensen if and when she becomes president of the United States as a libertarian that she go over the heads and talk directly to the voters talking about these sunset provisions talking about the safety net and then if your member of Congress doesn't vote for it he or she is putting their political interests ahead of yours you go talk to your politicians your representatives and let's get them on board. So those are other things that we could Discuss. One also that, that's a change of subject, but you go back to our founding, the, the Constitution, you will see that there was something like one member of Congress was representing about 40,000 constituents when, when originally we first founded the, the House of Representatives. Now it's something on the order of millions. Uh, it, it's really out of control. Why don't we go back to that original formula? Well, any mathematics would pretty much determine that we'd have something in the order of 2,500 members of Congress. That's totally unworkable. Well, is it really? No. How about if we were to do that, but have the members of Congress from the House of Representatives stay home, not go to Washington? They could could meet together on the internet with with the uh, particular systems now that we have, with Skype or Zoom or whatever. They could be virtual meetings. They could be private. They could be public. They can see documents. They can trade arguments back and forth. They can vote. They could do all of this from home. Well, would that be beneficial or not? Well, if they were only representing 40,000, it'd be much more local. They'd be much more attuned to local issues. They wouldn't have to go back and forth. My goodness, you ever think of the representatives from Hawaii and how much time they spend just, just in air travel or, or from the West Coast to the East Coast? They'd only need one office instead of two. They might even have a separate job on the side and be more local, where you'd see them at the grocery store and you'd see them more locally. And, of course, you would be really a lot more difficult on the lobbyists to be able to lobby 2,500 members of Congress all across the nation than it would be by being able to descend upon them in Washington. It's just a thought. Uh, I don't think it would need a constitutional amendment. I think it could be done but who? by whom? By Congress? Huh, maybe not likely, but it's certainly an idea that uh, we discuss here on All Rise. I think it would be a benefit. Again, come back to me and recommend these on, uh, on uh, JudgeJimCray.com. It's a thought. Uh, and I think it's a pretty good one. It's an interesting thought that we could do. The U S Senate would probably remain the same. Uh, there'd be two members of the Senate from each state and they would go to Washington and they could convert. Uh, yes, you'd lose some camaraderie. There's no reason though why a Congressperson from Minnesota can chat or go and talk with a, a con- member of Congress from Texas or whatever. But I think it's an intriguing idea and it would bring a lot of good things back to government. more local, less lobbying, less money influence, all of this would be good. What are other issues? Well, look, as a a libertarian, uh, I think that we are really important to focus upon war. But before I do that, as I remember, my wife had asked me to bring in a little levity, and we're getting pretty serious here, and we're going to get even more serious in a couple of minutes talking about declarations of war, but uh, I would bring in a little levity, at least intentional levity. And that was one time I saw a clip of Rodney Dangerfield on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And uh, Rodney was saying, because I'm kind of a fan of his, it's just kind of funny, has a different perspective. But he was saying, Johnny, you know, my luck is so bad that if I were to buy a cemetery, people would stop dying. I thought, oh, that's kind of a kick perfectly Rodney Dangerfield, but uh, at any rate, uh, that was kind of fun. So thanks, Grace. That's my wife. She has made that recommendation uh, to bring in a little levity. I, I didn't hear any chuckles, but uh, but we'll see as we go. So what is going to happen with regard to our military? Again, I feel that the Libertarian Party is the only party that speaks for the members of the military and their families. I've said this before. It's critically important because we send them into battle. And if they're ordered into a battle zone, what is their response? They salute and say, yes, sir. And off they go. Frequently coming back, the the more fortunate ones in many ways may be lost a limb but that's that's physical that's identifiable so they get pretty good care and coverage but a lot of them come back with used to be called shell shock but now it's called PTSD and and we are reaching the contract that we made with them to take care of them once they have given their 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 safety and everything to us so we've got to reduce these foreign wars. We all remember Washington, George Washington's farewell address recommending strongly that we avoid foreign entanglements. Well, we have ignored that to the degree that I think George Washington would be really upset with us. But, but how do we get involved in this? And the answer is, it's in Article 1, Section 8 of our Constitution. It says in there that Congress solely is the institute that can declare war. And we have had them abandon those those principles. They have passed these various war authorization acts both for well the T- Gulf of Tonkin resolution with regard to Vietnam and then the war authorization acts with regard to Iraq and Afghanistan and the rest. No. Make people go to Congress and it's a lot different in member of Congress to vote yes on an authorization of war act. So, Mr. President, you can just do as you feel is important, as opposed to, no, we're going to go into Panama, for example, where we rousted Noriega because he was involved in in drug dealing, but uh, make them actually sign on to a declaration of war. If that were to be the case, what would happen? Well, we'd start asking questions, appropriate questions like, okay, who is the enemy? Where is the enemy? What is the threat to our national interest, our threat to our national security? What is it? How will we know what our goals are? How will we know when we reach them? And so that form of thing will really result in a lot more analysis. Many times we would not pass that scrutiny. I am sure as much as I can be that we never would have passed that scrutiny and sent in our troops to Iraq, which by the way, I was campaigning at the time for US Senate 2004. And I said, if we put our troops into Iraq, it'll be the biggest mistake of my lifetime. And nothing has happened since that time to change my mind. I think that we were lied to. I think that members of our government were lied to, Colin Powell and others, but it would not have passed that scrutiny. This is critically important so that then our members of the armed forces, before they say say, aye-aye and salute and go into battle, they're going to then really know that it is in our national interest. It is for national security reasons. And then, of course, then the country is much more apt to stay along with it with the Vietnam War. Uh, we conflict, I guess I have to say, because it wasn't a declared war, but people became disenchanted because they feel that we had been lied to. But had we had that declaration of war, I think then that the people would have gone along with it. They would look at it. They would see the analysis and they'd be able to carry it forward. Again, what do you think? But this is critically important where it's only the libertarians that are representing our military in that regard, their safety, their security, as well as uh, their families, because their families suffer a great deal when their loved ones go off into battle zones as well. So all of these are just important. We talked about the beginning of this All Rise chapter uh, with Happy Fourth of July. We have the greatest country, in my opinion, that the world has ever seen. And uh, we, we actually have Uh, the Constitutional Convention. And I'm proud to say, and I'm going to uh, inflict this upon you maybe, but, but I did some research And uh, we wrote this musical called Convention, The Birth of America, and in my research I found that the 55 delegates, they battled, they complained, they bickered, they argued, they debated with each other over lots and lots of issues. But the thing that each of the 55 agreed upon unanimously was the most important function of government is protecting our civil liberties and our freedoms from the encroachment of government. I almost should say that again, because the most important function of government is protecting our individual freedoms and liberties from the encroachment of government. Number two most important was keeping us safe. We've gotten away from that so much. So we have this musical. I'm proud of it. Again, it's called Con- it's Convention, the Birth of America, and it shows the Constitutional Convention. And of course, it takes its-, it's historically accurate. It's also a lot of fun along the way. I haven't gotten it to be performed yet, but I'm talking with a national convention a Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and maybe we'll be able to to have it staged there. But but one way or the other, I'm I'm pleased about it. We also hold the delegates responsible and uh, keep them accountable because yes, they did approve slavery, and we have one song called "What About Me," where the delegates are really kind of puffing, saying freedom is what we long for, brotherhood is what we live, and things like that. And then you have a slave saying, "Well, what about me?" You know, you you build your your sp- fortunes on our backs and take advantage of us. So what about me? And then you have a a woman, Abigail Adams, or maybe someone else saying, well, you know, cooking, cleaning and sewing, but I don't see any reason to rejoice that we can't get an education. We can't travel. You know, what about me? Then you have a Native American, of course, who says, well, gosh, you know, you, we welcome you into our forest. This is the thanks that comes to starvation and you leave us just with the crumbs. What about me? And finally, then a blacksmith talking for kind of the middle class saying, well, we've bought and fought and died for freedom, too, but we can't own any property. How about lending us a hand? Oh, no, you're not going to do that. You're the well-bred, well-fed, well-read, well-wed, why you always meet in secrecy and, and goes on. But so we go through the entire constitutional convention and I'm coming up with something here because we have a finale where we actually sing some songs through the ages in which we actually can, can, uh, finish this off. And then the, we get applause and the curtain comes down. Then the curtain goes up again. And Ben Franklin, who's been our moderator leads George Washington back outside and says, well, George, if you think people have been eavesdropping, well, yeah, gee, dropping your eaves, that's gotta hurt. Well, but, but, Manager, turn on a little more of the, the band, candle power. Wow, look, there are people watching us. Well, George, is there something you want to tell our descendants? We're, we're now in the year 2020, Well, 240 years later. George, is there anything? Well, yes, it is. And then he sings this encore, joined by Ben Franklin and soon the entire cast. They say you like to call us founding fathers. Our portraits are still in your history books. To that we'd like we say we're deeply honored and glad to see that artists captured our good looks. But if you're our If we're the fathers, you're our sons and daughters. With some greats and grands appended, that's for sure. And though we never met you, we knew you'd be coming along someday. So we wrote this constitution to keep you safe and strong the American way. Keep it alive. See that it thrives and pass it along again. But you have to be wise. Just open your eyes. You have to be strong and then teach your children well. Maybe even tell them of your founding fathers how their sons and daughters carried it through a hundred or two perilous years to hand it to you for now you you are the people it's you you are the we It's yours, your constitution, it belongs to you and me. Yes, you, you are the people. It's you, you are the we. It's yours, your constitution, for this land of the free. Carry it forward, carry it on. Protect and defend it in keeping it strong. And when there is weakness, amend if you must, but harbor no meekness, defending this trust for you. You are the people. It's you. You are the we. It's yours, your constitution for this land of the free curtain. Happy Fourth of July. It's now up to us. It is our responsibility. And if our government is not working, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Make the system work. We have so many protections, but we've been If the government is not working, we have no one to blame but ourselves. That's at least my thought. Happy Fourth of July in the greatest country the world has ever seen. And thanks for joining us here on All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. It's a pleasure to be able to be your host. It's a pleasure to be able to share thoughts with good people. I have interesting guests. You can order up any of the past shows on demand, as you know, in Voice America Variety Channel. But in the meantime, just bless you. Protect yourself. Enjoy your 4th of July. give Give our great country some thought and some help by making that system work. In the meantime, then, I'll end this one, this edition, as I end with all of them, saying life is good. Why do I say that? Because it truly is. Happy 4th of July. Talk to you soon.